Test one, two, there we go. Good morning, everybody. Turn with me, please, to Ruth chapter four. Okay, let's pray before we start. Get a cough drop ready so you don't have to keep coughing. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to gather together to read your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for hope in you. Thank you that we can know you more. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Uh, bless me, Lord, as I uh, share your, your word uh, that your words uh, would come out of my mouth. We love you, Father, and we praise your name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, so in uh, Ruth, the last time we read was in chapter 3. And it was something of a cliffhanger, if you recall, where uh, Ruth had gone to Boaz at night had asked him to be her redeemer, uh, her kinsman redeemer, and then had uh, essentially proposed marriage, uh, let him know that uh, she would like him to marry her. And of course, he responded quite positively to that, um, letting her know that he was more than happy to be her kinsman redeemer uh, and also to be her husband. Uh, I like the openness uh, between those two. Uh, you know, there was, no, there was nothing hidden um, in marriage, communication is very important, uh, as I'm told, and, and you see a good start there. There was good communication between the two. Uh, she conveyed quite clearly what her intentions were, what her desires were, which, by the way, uh, she went off script as far as Naomi was concerned, uh, so we can definitely get from that that she was very interested in Boaz, and of course, he was very interested in her. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so she proclaims her desire, he says his desire, and then he says, but there is a closer relative than me, and there is a possibility that uh, he will want to step up and be the kinsman redeemer. And so Ruth goes home, tells Naomi all that happened, and Naomi's response was, um, you know, don't fret, don't worry, uh, Boaz is going to take care of the matter. Uh, he will not rest, she said, until uh, he had taken care of everything. So that kind of gives you a glimpse into Ruth's mindset in that she was, she was definitely very anxious uh, to not only marry Boaz, she wanted to marry Boaz, but then also uh, with this new, how shall I say, this new twist in the story, uh, there was some trepidation on her part. She didn't know this other guy. Uh, she had fallen in love with Boaz, and there was a possibility that this love story that was building up may not have a happily ever after. And so there was some anxiety on her part, and rightly so, um, because, again, she didn't know what she was getting into. So there was 
that admonition from Naomi to rest. In reality, that's our call is to rest in God because we don't know what our future is going to be. We know, though, that we can rest in his care. Whatever will happen is what he has planned out. And as you go through the book of Ruth, especially in hindsight, it's definitely obvious what God was doing. Um, And sometimes we do have to rely on that. We have to remember where God has brought us from, what he's brought us through, and we have to hold on to those truths and rest in him. So that was kind of the cliffhanger where we left off. Um, In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. The, excuse me. Remember that Ruth left Boaz before the sun came up. It was still very, very early in the morning. I would imagine that Boaz did not go back to sleep, that instead uh, he ended up going to the gate as soon as possible so he could catch that guy at any point. The earlier he got there, the better. And anxiety tends to do that to you. You just, you can't settle down. You have to go accomplish whatever it is that you need to accomplish. And so he went there early in the morning, and the gate that they're referring to, ancient cities were, of course, walled in, and their gates were huge, uh, you know, in order to allow large amounts of people to come and go. Um, And they had built the areas around those gates uh, with seating so people could come and talk with those who were coming and going. Uh, That's where you heard news. Uh, That's where a lot of the elders of the cities would oftentimes gather uh, to hear basically court cases. Uh, It was just kind of a a central location uh, for people to get business done in one way or another. And so that is where Boaz found himself. He went to the gate, and he happened to see the guy going by as he had planned. Um, And he said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And so the man turned aside and sat down. In your Bible, depending on which translation you have, it may say friend, or it may say a certain one. In other words, he called out, hey, you. (coughs) We are not told the man's name at this point. So I want you to note that for just a moment. It will become important later. Verses 2 through 6. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you and say... Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And then the man said, I'll redeem it. So all of a sudden the story doesn't look like it's going to go so well. Boaz, you know, in one sense, Boaz didn't totally have to do this because there was no real clear line from Elimelech to Boaz, in the sense that they were not, they were not brothers, <clears throat> they were more like cousins. 
maybe twice removed. And so, but Boaz's character is such that he wants to get everything out in the open. He doesn't want there to be any questions. He doesn't want the, the part in the service where it says, you know, if anyone knows of any reason why these two should not be joined, for, speak now or forever hold his peace. And so he wanted to get that done with now. He didn't want somebody raising his hand going, you know what, I didn't get a chance to uh, try to redeem Ruth. And so Boaz is going to do that now. But he starts off in kind of an interesting way. He starts off first with the property. He says, yeah, there's, uh, there's some property that Naomi needs to sell. Remember Naomi? She came from, you know, she's the, the widow who came back. And she's going to sell her property. She needs money. She's, she's a widow. She needs money. And she, she's going to sell the property. Would you like to purchase it? And the man says, yes, I would like to purchase it. <clears throat> then Boaz said, well, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite. The Moabitess. Boaz has kind of two parts to this. And I'll explain a little bit more in just a minute. First, he throws out the, the property and the man bites, which, you know, is, is kind of the normal response. I'm sure Boaz expected that because what guy, especially in that time, would not want to enlarge his land? Land meant more money, um, more opportunities. But then Boaz throws in, uh, yeah, by the way, you're going to have to marry Ruth also. Which, on the face of it, you think, okay, well, maybe the guy is not opposed to that idea. But Boaz tags on uh, something to Ruth. He says, Ruth, the Moabitess. He says, and um, yeah, she's the widow of the dead, Malon, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. <clears throat> there's some parts to this, again, that Boaz was kind of setting up. First, he mentioned Ruth was a Moabitess. Then he mentions that, yeah, remember, she's the, the widow of Malon, and you would marry her in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And what that meant at this time was that the, a close relative, usually how this worked was if you had a brother, uh, he was married, he and his wife did not have children, he died, his brother would then marry the widow and then raise up a child to receive the firstborn's inheritance. And so what Boaz is presenting to this man is that if you marry Ruth, the first child you have is going to inherit what was once Elimelech's. He gets that inheritance, i.e., you don't get that inheritance. Your children don't get that inheritance. So this land that you're going to purchase is not really yours. You are going to be kind of the caretaker, so to speak, of it. You are going to raise that child up in order to receive this inheritance. So there are a couple of stigmas attached to this deal. It's not just a free and clear, you get, you get $10,000. There was also another thing attached to the land. 
uh, depending on where they were at, in the year of Jubilee, which usually was about every 50 years, uh, the, if land was purchased from somebody, especially usually like a widow or somebody who was poor, they had to sell their land in order to sustain themselves. In the year of Jubilee, they're allowed to redeem it. They're allowed to get that land back. So there was also another possibility that he could once again lose the investment of that land. <clears throat> and his response is, I can't redeem it. In other words, I won't redeem it. Lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So the, the qualifications for being a kinsman redeemer, you had to be a relative of the family. You had to be able to redeem, and you had to be willing to redeem. And in re reality, this man fit both all, well, first two categories. He was a relative, and he could have if he wanted to, but he didn't want to. And I think one of the reasons Boaz laid this out is because he knew this guy's character. So how long has Naomi and Ruth been back in Bethlehem? For quite some time, at least several months, during the, the times of the harvest. Who has been taking care of Naomi and Ruth during this time? Boaz. Initially, it was without any sort of promise. He was just doing it because, uh, out of the kindness of his heart. He was actually fulfilling uh, an obligation, a duty, if you will, of the, of the relative, of a close relative of the widow. He was taking care of the widow, or actually two widows in this case. But this individual, the unnamed one, or a certain one, as Scripture calls him, hadn't done anything thus far. And so when Boaz lays out, hey, there's some property available, are you interested? Absolutely. Gain for myself. Well, yeah, there's responsibility that comes with it, though. And here is the responsibility. And that gain for yourself actually won't be a gain for yourself. It's going to be a gain for somebody else. You are going to be their servant, by the way. And that's when the man said, no, sorry, that doesn't interest me. I can't do that. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we read in verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. I'm going to have you go to, or at least put a note down to go to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. And this is what, uh, in the Old Testament, this is the law that it's referring to. I alluded to it earlier when I said, brothers who will, you know, if, if a brother, one brother dies, the other brother has to marry the widow. So if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall be married, shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, i.e. get the inheritance, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, 
My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. I'm glad we don't have to do this today. <coughs> but the reason behind this, again, was to take care of uh, the widows and the orphans. Uh, because there was, once the, the man of the house died, there was no way for them to provide for themselves uh, unless somebody else stepped in. And in Naomi's case, she had some land, but she would have to sell it in order to provide for her and Ruth. And the problem with that is the money only goes so far. The, the year of Jubilee could potentially be still 50 years out. And so that's a, that's a long time to make that money stretch. And so really this was set in place so people would be provided for. People who could not provide for themselves would be provided for. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people back in Ruth, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. It's done. It's a done deal. And Boaz is making a public proclamation. It's a done deal. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so you have the public proclamation of Boaz. He's going to not only get the girl and marry Ruth, which is one of his primary goals. Note he didn't mention really the land. Uh, I mean, he, he did mention that he bought... From the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, but the land was not his focus. Ruth was his focus. But then he also mentions that he's going to basically take care of Naomi as well. They are both going to come under his wing. They've been under his wing for quite some time, but he's going to make it official now. They are under his charge. And in response, note how it instead of just being the elders, it kind of drew a crowd. It said all the people who were there, so people who were passing by the gate were like, what's going on? So they all stopped by and were listening to this whole thing that happened. So the unnamed one, a certain one, is called such because really 
He's of no importance in one sense. He neglected his duty. He neglected his responsibilities and opportunities that could have led to many, many blessings on his part. Now, obviously, this was all part of God's plan. But still, <clears throat> and then the people bless Boaz and Ruth. They state, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Now, you know, some of your Old Testament history, you'll know that they were part of building up the house of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. So in other words, they are saying to Boaz, may, you, may your house be as large as the house of Israel. May your name continue on. And may you be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Which, you know, as I read that, I thought, okay, I get the first two. I wonder why they mentioned Perez. And so as I began to look through this, the answer was in the next few verses. Perez is actually part of Boaz's genealogy. He would be like great, great, great grandfather, somewhere around in there. So basically, may this house continue to thrive and grow. So the part we've all been waiting for, the big buildup, right? So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Yay! If this was a Disney movie, it would be this big fanfare. This would be the end of the movie, by the way, where you know the two go off and you'd, there would be singing and you know all sorts of stuff. She became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman, women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap or her breast, and became his nurse. Side note, that word nurse is not actually like nursing. She's his nanny. Um, in that day and age, especially in that culture, uh, the grandparents would live with the parents. Uh, they would all reside together, and the grandparents would help take care of the kids, etc. So that was kind of what was happening here. Uh, plus the fact that, again, Boaz is taking care of Naomi. Uh, and so they are in the same house, or at least the same household. Um, and so they had a built-in babysitter. Good for the parents. And the women of the neighborhood gave the child a name. That's unique. Usually the parents give the child a name. This is one of the only places in Scripture where the people in the neighborhood gave the child a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed, which means worshiper. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. <coughs> Excuse me. When I was younger and I would read through Scripture, I get to the, the genealogy parts and I, I would like start to kind of nod off. 
But I find some of these genealogies fascinating now, not just because I'm, I'm older, but because of the importance of this particular genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, it says, This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Uriah's wife. And... I have a little note here that I put that says an unclean bloodline. I've drawn on this before, but I find it absolutely amazing that our God included specific people in the genealogy of the physical family of Jesus. <clears throat> if you are familiar with Again, your Old Testament uh, history. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's a weird story. Kind of a weird and dark story. Not a stereotypical husband-wife good story. Then it moves on. We get to Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who all remembers Rahab? So Joshua, time of conquest. City of Jericho, going around it multiple times. Rahab was the harlot who hid the spies. It's surmised in Jewish history that uh, Salmon was one of the spies. And so when Rahab was rescued out, he married her. But she was not... She was not a Hebrew. And on top of that, she was a harlot. She was redeemed out of that life and brought into, essentially, the family of God. Now, side note, <clears throat> because as you read through this, uh, the genealogy might not make a little sense at a certain point. There are gaps. There are uh, generation gaps. And that was actually very common uh, to not mention, especially if you read through, let's say, the genealogy of Christ, there are times where certain individuals were not mentioned. And yet you go back in the Old Testament and you go, well, what about, what about these people? They got skipped. They didn't do anything great and fantastic. There was nothing noteworthy. We can kind of move on and get to the point, is what some of these genealogies say. We're going to hit the highlights. We're going to let you know some of these key people. So I mentioned that just as a side note. Because Salmon was actually Boaz's grandfather, great-grandfather, somewhere around in there. There were a few generations. Anyway. So Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Who was Ruth? She was a Moabitess. That's an important point also, again, 
because the Moabite people were actually cursed by God. Uh, God had said that uh, no Moabite or Ammonite to the 10th generation would come into the presence of God, that that they would not uh, basically be allowed into uh, the nation of Israel. And here we have Ruth. So she's one of those people. That, by the way, also played into the stigma for the, uh, the unnamed one for possibly not wanting to marry Ruth because that would jeopardize his inheritance potentially to disobey God's direct order could potentially jeopardize his inheritance. How did Boaz get away with it? Because Ruth had been redeemed more than physically. She had been redeemed spiritually. She had actually proclaimed way back at the beginning of Ruth, your God will be my God. In other words, I will follow the God of Israel. He will be my God. He is my God. <clears throat> but again, I find it fascinating that God included all of these imperfect people in his bloodline, basically. That was the point I was getting. And the reason for that is because he came to save imperfect people. He came to this earth, he took on a physical form to identify with us and to die in our place. Thank God. Because only God can do something like that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, it says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame what is strong. God could have sent his son in all pomp and circumstance that he fully deserves. But how was he born? He was born to Mary, stepfather Joseph, who was a poor carpenter. They were from poor means anyway. And then were they at the Hilton when Jesus was born? No, they were not. They were in a stable, filthy, dirty place with animals and feed. And it said, Mary laid Jesus in a manger. In other words, there was no place, no other place to put Jesus except for inside a feed trough. Our God chose to be, to come into this world in the most humble means possible. And then live in a humble way and die in a most humiliating way. All to redeem his people. And that really is the whole point of this story. So you get to the end of Ruth. <clears throat> and we have to ask the question, uh, who is the book of Ruth about? And you think to yourself, well, Ruth, because it's called the book of Ruth. But it is kind of funny, you know, the book of Ruth really didn't start with Ruth, and it doesn't end with Ruth. In fact, we, uh, we kind of leave Boaz and Ruth after verse 13. 
They exit stage, and we don't really hear about them anymore. So is it about Naomi then? Maybe it should have been called the Book of Naomi. Because, I mean, really, it kind of started with the Book of Naomi and almost seems to kind of end with Naomi. But really, it's not about Naomi either because it doesn't end with Naomi. She kind of also exits stage after we start talking about Obed. So is the book of Ruth about Obed then? Is it about a baby? Well, indeed, it is about a baby. But it's not about Obed either. Ah, but then it says, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. As it says in in the genealogy line there. So maybe it's really about David. Well, in one sense, it is about David. Because it's showing where David's family came from. But it's not about David either. (coughs) Who is it about? Go back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That is who the story of Ruth is about in reality. There are many parallels in the story of Ruth. I've actually just thoroughly enjoyed finding the parallels in the story of Ruth. The biggest parallel, of course, is the kinsman redeemer part that Boaz takes on. He is the foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus is our Redeemer. He's more than our kinsman Redeemer in the sense of redeeming us physically, but he has redeemed us spiritually. Again, remember the qualifications for being a kinsman Redeemer. He had to be related, he had to be able, and he had to be willing. And Jesus matches all of those things because he became a man He was more than able, and of course, way more than willing. When you read in in Scripture where Jesus is crucified, it states, and Jesus said this, no one takes my life, I lay it down. Jesus laid himself on the cross. Side note, can you imagine the shock? to the Roman soldiers. They normally had to wrestle somebody to the ground and multiple soldiers would have to hold somebody down as they were being nailed to that cross. Jesus didn't need that. He just laid on the cross. And it wasn't the nails that kept him there. It was his love for us. And so he is the kinsman redeemer, the true redeemer. And again, this was all part of God's plan. There are no accidents. In Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The story of Ruth. Ruth, if you want to look into the, the sovereignty of God, look at how God orchestrated everything within the book of Ruth. God is not directly referenced, again, which is interesting, the same with Esther. 
God is not directly referenced, but he is always evident. And you see his hand moving through the story and guiding everything and laying everything out. It just so happened. It just so happened. It seems that way to us. But God had a plan all laid out that everybody followed through with. So what is, who is our story about? Our story being, who is our life about? And this is actually the big reveal. So the book of Ruth is not about Ruth. It's not about Naomi. It's not about Boaz. It's not about Obed. It's not about Jesse or David. It's about Jesus. And so too with us, our story, our life, it's not about us. And some people take offense to that because we've built up in our minds that uh, we are special and that somehow we have some sort of goodness in us and that warrants God's favor. And so that leads to more, we should do more to warrant God's favor even more. And in reality, Again, it's not about us. We are not special in that sense. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like polluted or filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. In other words, we do not have anything in of ourselves that would make God go, Ooh, I like that person. Ooh, I like that one too. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, in you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus is our true redeemer. When Jesus died on the cross, the last word he called out, it is finished, which is a counting term, uh, to telestai, which means debt canceled, it's done. There's nothing left for you to do. It has been paid in full. And they would actually write that on debts. Either if a prisoner was released, he would be stamped with tetelestai. Or if somebody actually owed money, their debt would be written with tetelestai. Paid in full. Nothing else owed. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And of course, in Romans chapter 5, in verse 8, <coughs> excuse me, but God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, it's not about us. Now, don't get me wrong. When I say we are not special, there's nothing in us. We are decrepit people. In one sense, we are worthless. But that makes God's grace even greater because then you realize 
I did not deserve this. I did not deserve his love. I did not deserve his grace. I did not deserve his righteousness that I now wear. It is all because of what Jesus did. It is all because of God. Excuse me. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17, last reference. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh craves what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are opposed to each other, so you do not do what you want. Again, reflecting the condition of our heart. Just because... We are not special. Does not mean that, again, that God does not love us with an everlasting love, a love that goes far beyond our comprehension. Again, when you understand that you have nothing to bring to the table. Just like Ruth, we are essentially destitute. We're an accursed people from a foreign land. We have nothing to bring. And yet God has shown us great mercy and grace and love and brought us into his family. That offer is available to those who do not know Jesus today. If you do not know Jesus, that offer is available. There's nothing that you can do on your own to give you salvation, to atone for your sins. But, Christ, he died for you. He loved you so much that he was willing to redeem you. Now, he could have just, when humanity fell, it was no surprise to God that humanity fell, by the way, but when humanity fell, he could have just wiped the slate and started over and said, you know what? Scrap that idea. I'm going to create a perfect people. But instead, all part of God's plan from eternity past, he sent his son to redeem us. We now have the ability to be free of sin. That is actually what salvation means. Not just the fact that we get to skip out on hell. That is, a, that is an extra benefit. Salvation is being freed from sin and the power of sin in our lives. That is what salvation is. Every day, it's being more and more conformed into the image of Christ. So we get to live with him for eternity. And again, that offer is available to you today if you don't know Christ. And if you do know Christ, for those who do, again, revel in the idea of God's grace. I've heard grace as an acronym. Uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. Delight in that. Delight that he loved you so much that he was willing to die for you and redeem you for himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have such an amazing God. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. I pray that you would bless us the rest of this week, Lord. Draw us closer to you. 
Father, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us and that we would overflow with your love. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we praise your name. Amen.